Hey, with all that applause, I can hardly wait to hear what I got to say. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> uh, my name is Searcy, S-E-A-R-C-Y, like Searcy, Arkansas, but I'm not from there. And I am the adult alcoholic child of non-alcoholics. <laughs> Did you ever hear of one? Did you ever... Well, in that case, uh, as of today, and this is the reason I'm so deeply grateful to each of you, as of this date, I have not had a drink in one month and 49 years. (laughs) That's not because I did it. That's because you helped me. That's because you gave to me one of the most important gifts you can give anybody, sobriety, peace of mind, and happiness in a world that's floating with everything besides what we find in Alcoholic Anonymous. Well, <clears throat> I asked him what he wanted me to talk how much uh, drunkologue he wanted me to talk about, and he said, well, a couple of minutes will be all right, <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's about enough. You know, the only difference in all of us is you drank in one bar and I drank in another. But we wound up here. Thank God. We wound up here. (laughs) I like that old, uh, we used to have a preamble that said, some people may be shocked at our worldliness and levity. But just underneath there's a deadly earnestness and a full realization that we must put first things first. And the first thing is our alcoholic problem. To drink is to die. Faith has to work through us 24 hours a day, in and through us, or we perish. And then we'd have a moment of silent meditation. (laughs) And I'm going to say to you today, if you will say a little quickie, you know, the best talks I ever make... I make three good talks. The one I make before I get up here, the one I make after I sit down, and the one you make for me. Right? (laughs) And the one you make for me is the best one because that's your feeling of how you feel about what I'm saying today. But if you will say a little quickie to, to this old man up here, that he might say something that will help me stay sober another day, and then you can't criticize me because you've been a part of it, right? <laughs> so, <clears throat> I uh, I was raised in, <clears throat> oh, I've got, yeah, I've got, uh, I've got some numbers that are uh, very important to me. There are three numbers, 85, 60, and 49. That's not my measurement. <clears throat> I'm 85 years old. I've been married to the same woman 60 years. And I've been 49 years sober. Ain't that a hell of a bunch of numbers? <laughs> I cannot help but feel, and this is my first trip to Akron. I used to travel with Electric Autolite Company, and our, our ba- home base was in Toledo. 
And I would ask those guys in Toledo, let's run over to Akron. I'd like to see Akron. And they said, hell, there's nothing over there. That's what they told me in Toledo. That's not what I said. <laughs> so they never brought me. And of all my 49 years in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I've never been to Akron except through here on the train going to Toledo or somewhere else. But I thank God that, and I can feel the sunlight of the Spirit that enlightens our lives through the footsteps of where I went this morning, over to Dr. Bob's house. And all of those things that... I've got a perfect video in my mind of exactly how Bill Wilson coming down off the old Mayflower, hopeless and helpless and no place to go and $10 in his pocket. Where in the hell can you go for $10? And, and you know what happened. But if it had not been for all of those footsteps, you think about those footsteps. On the print, the footsteps on the print on time, how they, how they happened. Bill coming on the elevator. Bill going to the directory in the old Mayflower. And you think this is a coincidence? No way. He went to the directory there to find somebody that might know a drunk that he could talk to. And he went down and that, there were 40, they tell me, I don't know. They tell me there were, Forty directors of churches in in that lobby of the hotel, and and Bill Wilson went to the one, the only one possibly that would make that call, the Reverend Combs, right? And he made that call to Henrietta, and they met. I can feel those footsteps. I can feel the sunlight of the Spirit of God interceding. We can talk all we want to about books and poems and this and that and the other. But the bottom line is, when and if we find that power greater than we are, with whom we are comfortable, we're going to stay sober, right? <clears throat> but something has to happen. Something has to happen. And that something that has to happen comes through the grace of God, right? No other way. No other way. It comes through the grace of God. So... I was born and raised in West Texas, and a sorry country, you talk about sorry, it was the sorriest country in the world. Nothing out there but coyotes and, and, and prairie dogs and coon dogs and stuff like that. There's nothing else out there. You know, it's just a wild west. But I was raised on a little farm out there. <clears throat> And uh, and I didn't like it. There were seven a week kids, but our father and mother were and had those absolutes that we talk about that the Oxford people had. They had absolute honesty. They had absolute grace. They had absolutely dependency upon and faith in that power greater than we are. And if I had not had the background of knowing, I always knew during my drinking days that there was a power greater than me. I choose to call that power God. I knew that all along, and my father, and oh, he was a deacon in the Baptist church, and that's a missionary Baptist church, and that's the worst kind. you know. <clears throat> but he taught me that if I ever took a drink, I'd go straight to hell. <clears throat> Just like that. No in-between. No nothing in-between. You'd go straight to hell. So, And he taught me that to drink was sin. S-I-N. 
So I started S-I-N-N-I-N-G. And I didn't let up until 1946. I drank my way through high school. I drank my way through everything that I went into. Uh, I was not, not, was not what you'd call a, a, a farmer that loved farming. And there's that sweet gale. <laughs> I want to thank uh, all you people that had anything to do with this great, great, great homecoming. And I, and I want you to know that that we know how much trouble you went through and how much expense you and how all the things you did to make this possible. And I'm deeply grateful to you. <clears throat> my, on that farm, you know, my mother said I was more of a planter than I was a farmer. I planted it and hoped the hell it didn't grow, you know. <clears throat> That's the kind of farmer I was. <clears throat> I want to go back because I think it's important that let, that we, in our memories and in our minds, we focus upon how those people that interceded for us in the beginning, what they went through with, how they dedicated themselves with the power of God to create this fellowship we call Alcoholics Anonymous. They went through hell. They went through trials and tribulations and all the, all the things you can think of. And when I think of, of those people that went before us and how they dedicated themselves, how they died for us, how they did things for us, it, it reminds me of the, of the poem about those who died in World War II in Flanders Field. You remember that? Lots and lots and millions of, of, of our, our people died in Flanders Field. They're buried there. But they dedicated themselves to that. But shall we forget them? We better not. And shall we forget our founders and what happened and how they worked for us to save our lives? We better not. So I'm reminded of the, of the poem that was written about those who died in Flanders Field. And it goes something like this. In Flanders Field, the poppies grow between the crosses, row on row that mark our places, and in the skies the larks still bravely singing fly. Scarce heard amidst the guns below, we're the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, but now we lie in Flanders Field. Take up the quarrel with the foe, to you with fading hands we throw the torch. Be it yours to hold high, if you break faith with us who die, you shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders Field. Isn't that just like our founder? Isn't that just like those who went before us? That depicts exactly how we should feel about our dedication to maintaining alcoholics anonymous, just like it was born, just like it was experienced. And so, I, I didn't like that farm and I went to a little bigger town, a little, just a little larger town than I was born in, raised in. And I played a lot of sandlot baseball, and when I finished high school, I had a contract with a with a, a baseball, a triple-A uh, baseball in Midland, Texas, way out in West Texas. And we didn't have ballparks in those days. We had cow pastures. We played out in cow pastures. And our baseball manager, I've got to, you know, there's a lot of funny things happened to me along the way to sobriety. And this is one of 
we had a baseball manager named Doc Ellis. And Doc was also a funeral director at a big funeral party. Well, after after baseball games on Sunday, we'd gather at the funeral parlor and drink homebrew. I've seen a few homebrew faces around here. There's some I located. There's one down there. You can tell them. They show up. They're real bright. And they glow. They just glow. You know, <laughs> at the alcohol. You know. But anyhow, we at the funeral parlor on Sunday night, we'd drink home. We had one guy named Red Hill with a was a hell of a baseball player, but he couldn't drink very well. He drank two bottles of homebrew and passed out. And he always passed out. We said, well, we'll fix him. So this Sunday night, Red had a couple of beers and passed out, lively, on the floor, lively. We rolled a casket in and that funeral parlor and, and put him in it and dressed him up, crossed his arm, fixed his uh, everything just perfect. After it, sprayed a little perfume on him, you know. This and that. And we stood back and drinking silly, acting crazy like you do when you're drunk, you know. And we said, we want to listen to what this guy said. And we listened. And Red raised up out of that casket and looked around. And he said, well, if I'm not dead, why am I here? And if, and if I am dead, why have I got to go to the bathroom? You know, we drunks can figure things out. We're not dumb, you know. We figure out. <laughs> I, uh, I went from there, play, but I, we were given good jobs. We were not paid salaries to play baseball then. We were given good jobs, and I was given this job with a, with a Fortune 500 motor company that had everything from Abilene to El Paso and motor cars. And we were lucky that we had an auto. The Chrysler people put a, uh, an oil filter on trucks in those day, in the Depression. These are Depression, the beginning of the Depression years. And the only truck that would stand up in those sand dunes out there was a Dodge truck, and we sold the hell out of it. We sold them all over the country real good. And they made me vice president of this company, a, a large company. And that gave me the right to drink a lot of whiskey. And you take an old boy that was raised on a farm and had to drink buttermilk or sweet milk and very little of that. And, and you give him a lot of money. And if he has that X factor in his life, whatever that is, and all the scientists and all the preachers and all everybody else have not been able to figure it out, neither have I. But if you have that X factor in there and you add alcohol to it in large doses for a long time, you may cross the line into compulsive pathological drinking, and that's the only kind of drinking that's a disease. The only kind. Compulsive pathological drinking. I had to drink to get away from the effects of drinking. I had to get drunk in the morning to get over having gotten drunk the night before. I know it never happened to you, but it did to me. <laughs> so, so we pursue that cunning and baffling and powerful substance called alcohol, the first cousin to ether. And why in the hell I need an anesthetic, I don't know, except I had those X factors. But alcohol is the first cousin to ether. Why do I need ether? Do it for an anesthetic. And we're the only people who use alcohol for what it was supposed to be, an anesthetic. We anesthetize our conscience, our brains, our moral problems, our everything. We anesthetize it and we get over it. And we keep drinking until we cross that line to where the point where once we start drinking, we cannot stop. That's an alcoholic, right? 
And there are more symptoms of this disease than any other disease in the world. We have all kinds of hate, uh, all kinds of, of, of problems with these symptoms. Resentment, fear, anger. And all. But anyhow, <clears throat> I started losing jobs with this motor company first and then down the line, different things. <laughs> your drinking takes away the effective effectiveness of your job and what you do. Drinking comes first of everything. And I put it first, alcohol first in my life all the way through. So, you ever notice your luck changes when you keep drinking and you go down into where you're drinking to get away from the effects of drinking? Has nothing to do with drinking but your luck shot to hell. Your luck just goes. Everything you do turns to bad luck, right? You get DWIs, <laughs> We get all kinds of tickets, none of them good, but we get those things, and then we blame it on, you know, I had a lot of narrow-minded employers. I could fail to show up for a couple of weeks and I'd get fired. That's just, that's a narrow-minded employer. You know, they ought to have better respect for a sick person than that. Anyhow, but they didn't. I went ahead and lost those jobs and on down, on and on, but in the meantime, I'd met and married this gal here. Thank God. I know. <laughs> but we got drunk together. <laughs> this uh, black belt at Elanon now used to get drunk too, you know. And and we got drunk, we went to parties, but never did she have that X factor in there to where she had to have that drink the next morning or after she started drinking she would get a grasshopper, I think that's what they call it, put salt all around the rim with tequila or whatever it is. She, she'd order one of those things and sit there all night and hell, the salt still on it, the, the stuff is still in it. That's the sorriest kind of drinking in the world, you know. <clears throat> if you're gonna drink, drink it up. Let her go. You know, drink it all. I never could stand to see liquor go to waste. It's, it's just a waste to let it sit around and not do something for you. When you've got to have an antiseptic, take it, you know, let it roll. Well, <laughs> a roundabout way, I went to Corpus Christi as a credit manager of the Packard Company uh, back in the late 30s. And they gave me a, one of those long, most of you young ones I know never heard of a Packard automobile. They were about as long as this, all this stuff right here. And they gave me that, and I'd go out on the King Ranch where there's a million acres out there and about 15,000 head of cattle, and that's all that's out there. But I'd go down, stock with liquor, and go out there and spend a week or two at a time just in that old Packard drinking booth. And they got so narrow-minded, they fired me. They let me go. Well, you keep losing jobs, and you lose jobs, and you lose self-esteem. You lose all of the things that you wanted and that you visioned you might be someday. But it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is alcohol. And I took those four horsemen and I rode them to death. Terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. I rode them to death. I stayed with those horses. I rode them out. I'll take charge. I'll handle this. This is my problem. Don't tell me what to do. I'll handle it. And I did. And I, I wound up in Corpus Christi, Texas. Uh, I didn't want anybody to see, you know, a farmer 
big shot driving a pickle truck. They had these gallon jars of pickles and onions, and I hired out to this fellow to take those things and sell them to a hamburger joint. And you take a man drunk every day and trying to balance with those gallon jars, you've got a problem on your hand. And that's what I tried to do. So, anyhow, it made sense to me that I take a truckload of those pickles and up down in Mexico and I trade them for tequila. Every bit of them. All of them. And, and I came back to Corpus Christi and checked in the suite of hotels. And here I've got enough booze to last for a long time. But, but I, I had some bad things happen. My luck fell bad again. My wife was a court reporter and and a good one, and she was a legal secretary. And there were 4,000 lawyers in the city of Corpus Christi, and she was hired out. She worked for the very one that would turn in a report to get me in jail. They were calling that office every day, where in the hell's the pickle truck? We don't want him, we want the pickle truck. But they got me in the truck boat, and I wound up in jail. If you ever want to go to jail, don't go to Corpus Christi. And get in that, it's the worst jail in the world. There's no room service, no telephone, no nothing. There's just absolutely no service there. <laughs> well, they decided I needed to take the geographical cure. Did you ever do that? You know, they told me I was running with some sorry people. Can you imagine a drunk running around with sorry people? Never heard of it. But I did. And that, that's what they told me. So they suggested I go to Dallas. And I went to Dallas. You know, you know what the geographical cure is, don't you? Unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. <clears throat> well, that good luck, good luck followed you around. I went into the service and they shipped me off to, uh, because as a smart alcoholic, I found this this defense plant I was working when we did, we did work for a, a manufacturer of of, uh, of uh, plane Grumman planes that would shoot down the enemy. And I discovered a lot of unpatriotic people in that worked in that plant. You know, an alcoholic can pick them out. Just leave it to us. We'll pick them out. And I discovered those people were not doing their job and we were going to lose that war. So I volunteered to go into service. And, uh, and uh, to my, <laughs> to my dismay, I found out they took me. Later on, I was drunk when they took me. But they took me into service and I stayed in there for almost a year and they decided if they were going to win the war, they better get rid of me. And that's what they did. Let me go. I came back. And we were living in Dallas at that time. I came back and I hired to another company from Toledo, Electric Autolite Company. In the summer of 1940, I had five states out of Lubbock, Texas. And out of there, we we serviced all that area, those five states around there, Colorado, New Mexico, and whatever. And in my travels in Odessa, Texas, I ran into my old drinking buddy, Bob Skimmerhorn. Bob and his mother owned a big oil company in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and he kept me drunk for many, many years. He had a lot of money, he and his mother owned the oil company, and we drank together. He liked to drink with me for some reason, I don't know why. 
but he always had money, so he'd get drunk, pass out, and I'd get his money. He kept me drunk for several years, but that's all right. Bob passed on. Uh, I ran into Bob in Odessa, Texas, a little oil town out in West Texas, and I said, Bob, go with me. I've got to have a drink. I'm about to die. And he said, I'll go with you. And we went up to the room. We poured a couple of big glasses like this. I did pour them. And Bob said, you can take your drink. You need it, but I'm not drinking today. And I said, well, Bob, what kind of a neurodisease you got? You, you, you got to have some kind or you'd be drinking. I never heard of him turning the drink down, never in his life. But he said, you take your drink and then we'll talk. And we talked. And he said, let me tell you what happened. I would drink at night. As you know, I've had a problem for years. And I said, yes, I knew. I know you can't drink worth a damn. I know that. But he said, I would get up at night and load the car with booze and and in front of the airport driveway, Highway 183, he said, I ran into a carload of ladies at a convention there and four of them were killed. And he said, I had to do something about my drinking. So there's a bunch of we fellas in Dallas, there are ten of us, and we meet and we talk about how we used to drink and what we did and now we don't drink anymore and I've been sober ten months. I never heard such a terrible statement in my life. Now I've been sober ten months. I, I knew he couldn't stay sober two days, let alone ten months. But he said, let me send you the book that this is about and what to do. And then when you go as far as you can go, you can't go one more step further. You come to see me and I'll help you. You need to quit drinking. You're an alcoholic. And I said, uh-oh, that's plain language, but I, I don't accept that. I don't think I'm an alcoholic. I can't drink worth a damn, and I've, I've had, a, I've lost all these jobs and all these things, but I'm still not an alcoholic. Oh no, I didn't know what an alcoholic was. Anyhow, he sent, I said, well you, you send me this book, that's alright, but don't send it to my home. Send it to the hotel where I'll be next week, I'll get, I don't, my wife think I've got a drinking problem, you know. <clears throat> He sent it to the hotel, the whole Herring Hotel in Amarillo, Texas, and I thumbed through that and took it home and hid it where I hide my whiskey. And you know I didn't get sober? I didn't read the book, but I didn't get sober. But what happened was my wife read that book and stuck it back in there and never mentioned it to me. And this was in August of 1945. In November of that year, the electric autolite company fired me because I couldn't, I couldn't even make out my expense checks and I could write my own expense check, but I couldn't make them out. I was shaking too bad. I couldn't handle And, uh, an, uh, an attorney and myself who was a state legislator, we got together and drank in his office every day. Every day we got drunk, we'd start out with a, a quart of booze in the morning, we'd drink that and buy another one. He'd take care of a little case or two and come back in, we'd drink all. And every night I went home drunk from November 1945 until April 1946. And a moment of clarity, a moment of clarity that we talk about happened to me that day in the office. I said, you are hopeless and helpless. You cannot control your drink. You're, you're broke. You're hopeless and helpless, and you you have no no faith in tomorrow. You have nothing left. So what are you going to do? And the truck, the, the the thought, what Bob told me, you come to see me, and I'll help you. 
I got on the plane, went to Dallas. By Friday, Bob was out of the city. By by Saturday morning, they took me in an ambulance out to a booby trap, a place where they'd sober you up. In uh, seven days, they'd give you an ounce of booze every four hours. And I'd been drinking a pint every four hours, so you can imagine how much good that did. But they get, I, the, the second day, for some unknown reason, for the first time in 15 years, I waked up and I didn't need a drink. I did not need a drink. And the old Irishman downstairs told me, listen, son, if you'll not take a drink today, you'll never get drunk again. Nobody ever told me that, so now you tell me. Nobody ever said, don't take the first drink, you don't get drunk. They said, cut down. Drink like Joe. Drink like your Uncle John. Just take a sip in the morning for your health's sake and go on about your business. Nobody. Well, that's for the bird. You know, so anyhow, the third day, they took and said, we're going to take you to Alcoholics Anonymous. We went downtown Dallas, 9, 12 and a half million, and we parked in front of a liquor store. And this, I thought, was going to be fine. You know, AA may be good. Here, right in front of a good liquor store. But we didn't go in there. We went upstairs. And there were 10 or 12 guys up there walking and talking and breathing and having fun and going on about what happened. They're drinking and how they'd gotten well and all those things. And then a guy named Burl McInerney, thank God, led me to the board and showed me the 12 steps. And he said, this is the way to sobriety. There were no traditions in. But he said, if you will experience those 12 steps, you'll never take another drink. If you'll make a commitment, if you will accept the fact that you're an alcoholic and you can't handle alcohol, and you will commit yourself to not drink on a daily basis, just 24 And he asked me, he said, can you go 24 hours without a drink? I said, I can go 24 hours. I can't go a week. I can't go a month, but I can go 24. He said, okay, you make that commitment every morning. And here's the, the exact words that he gave me that day. First, he said, you have to, you have to accept what's wrong with you. And here are the words that he gave. Is the answer to all of my, acceptance is the answer to all of my problems today. When I'm disturbed, it's because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact in my life unacceptable to me, and, and, except some place, but at this moment, nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. Unless I accept life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as what needs to be changed in me and my attitude. And then he gave me this commitment. What is a commitment? I didn't know. I told him I'd promise God I wouldn't take a drink a lot of time, but my promise is no good. And he said, a promise is no but a commitment. If you believe in God and a higher power and you have respect for that power, make a commitment. And a commitment, he said, is what transforms a promise into reality. It is the words that, it, that speak boldly of your intentions and the actions that speak louder than words. It is making the time when there is none, coming through time after time, year after year. Commitment is the stuff character is made of, the power to change things. It's a daily triumph of integrity over skepticism. And that's what he gave. I went back to Lubbock, Texas, 
And there was not a group of Alcoholics Anonymous between Fort Worth, Texas and Tucson, Arizona. 1,500 miles, not a group. There were four members of AA between those cities, 1,500 miles. So, by the grace of God, I don't know how, I cannot tell you because I had nobody, I had no, I didn't know the 12 steps, I didn't know how. So every 30 days I'd get on the bus and go to Dallas to a meeting. And I'd go, whether I needed to meet it or not, I'd just go anyhow, you know. <laughs> Lonely, confused, and only by the sunlight of the fellowship of the Spirit on those small meetings that I got in doubt was I able to span the gap and stay sober for that short length of time. So all of these things they told me, they, they, they were good and, and they, they were great. And they gave me a little poem that about letting go and letting God and what God meant in my life. As children bring their broken toys with tears for us to mend, I brought my broken dreams to God because he was my friend. But then instead of leaving him in peace to work alone, I hung around and tried to help with ways that were my own. At last I snatched him back and cried, how can you be so slow? My child, he said, what could I do? You never let him go. And that was my way of doing it. This I can handle. This I can do. This is my ball of weight. This is my problem. And, you know, then I was, I was able to, uh, in a short while, uh, we had a Texas State Convention of Alcoholics Anonymous in Austin. And we had a great big crowd, something like here today. The first convention in 1946, we had 25 people at a state convention. Can you imagine that? And we thought that was a big crowd. That was a lot of alcoholics then, you know, together anywhere. I met Bill a lot, and Bill, for some reason, took a long liking to me, and I did to him. We just kind of kind of took on each other. He said, I'll help you, and I believe you can help me. So here we went. Margaret and I would go to New York and spend time with Bill and Lois down the line, and we thoroughly enjoyed it. We went in their home. They made us feel at home. They helped us to stay sober and to bridge that gap so we could get groups going to work so you could go to a meeting. And then in 1948, Bill Lois came back to Texas. And they came to Amarillo. I met them there. And on the plane from Amarillo back to Lubbock, where there were about a 100 AAs scattered from all over the Southwest, had met there to see what Bill's wings were like, you know. Check them out. And they were waiting. Bill reached in his pocket and pulled out some handwritten notes. And he said, I want you to read these and see what you think about them. And then hand them back to me. I read them over and I said, well, Bill, we don't need these down here. Uh, we love each other down here. Oh, how we love each other. We're, we've got a great fellowship. We respect you and all these things. What it was was the 12 traditions that he had written out. Aren't you glad I didn't have a damn thing to do with putting it together? Good. Little did I know that without those 12 traditions, we would not be here today. Little did I know that if it were not the 12 traditions, we would not have groups and places for us to go to stay sober and help each other. We have factions, of course, little factions that break out here and there, and they want to talk about something bad about Bill or Bob or anything. anything. I wish they'd tell it to non-alcoholics because they don't give a damn about it. You know, 
But don't tell it to another age. Hey, say something good about Bill and Bob and what happened, how wonderful this is. Always the upbeat. We've got a th- great thing. <clears throat> so, Bill, in the meantime, what he was doing was trying to, trying to get, and, and the people really down in the groups down there, they didn't, they didn't think we needed the traditions. They thought we're sober, and that's enough. But yeah, what are we going to do about holding this thing? Together? What happened to those people years ago that tried to help us? The Oxford movement, the Washingtonian movement. What happened? They're, they didn't have traditions that would, would glue them together forever and ever. Bill was so, and Dr. Bob was so enthused about us passing those. And then in 1950, at the International Conference in Cleveland, we were there and Bob and Bill took me up in the room and they gave me a, the best selling I've ever had on the traditions. You talk about selling, they twisted my arm and they had me down in the group, the whole convention was not much bigger than this in Cleveland in 1950. But they had me out there trying to get people to understand we need the 12 tradition, we need the whole AA together. We need to glue this thing. We've got something good. Let's keep it. And I didn't realize how important that was. But then that afternoon, on Saturday afternoon, I'll never forget, I was right in the middle of the office, uh, the, the stadium, sitting up here and wondering, what, is, what are they going to vote? How are they going to vote? And when that bill made a, an appeal to let's pass these traditions to save us, then there was not a dissenting vote. Not one dissenting vote. And that's why we're together today. That's why we have AA today, because we, we do not dissent the fact that we need to be held together, and that we need unity, and we need purpose, and we need to stay together. And if we stay together and hold each other together, we will always survive, without any doubt. You know, if you're not as close to God as you once were, make no mistake about who's moved. And if you never were close to him, make no mistake about who should move. Right? Without that power greater than we are, and I relive all of those things that happened like this, that when Abby went to see Bill for the 40th to 39th time in town's hospital, and he took in the message, and you know what the message was? It hasn't changed in our program, really the bottom line. And Bill asked, what is this religion you've got? Well, he said it's not religion, really, but it's spiritual. But these things are important with us. Trust God and clean house. Trust God and clean house. And... <clears throat> Those things are still important in our program today, and that's the bottom line. Trust God and clean house, you know. Well, later on, of course, as you know, Bill got sober the 40th time he was in there, and Abby got drunk. Abby went back on the Bowery and stayed down there. And Bill, Bill got sober and came here to this place. And he and Dr. Bob met, and they put this thing together piece by piece over a long, you know how it happened. I don't have to go through that. 
But to show you how these things happen, some of the people drop out along now. They help us institute these ideas and things, and then they're gone. We don't know. So Abby dropped out of the picture. Then I have to tell you that at long in 1947, I kept asking Bill all these silly questions about an alcoholic. Why have I got a disease? Why have, why this and all these things? And Bill said, you're so inquisitive, why don't you go to the Yale School on Alcohol Studies and study alcoholism, and you'll know. I said, all right, I'll go. And I went. And I studied under Dr. Jelinek and the finest people that you ever heard tell of, uh, but they didn't quite understand alcoholism. But but I was in there, and they taught me all of these things about uh, alcoholism and compulsive pathological drinking, and thank God... Dr. Jelinek was the star of the thing because he introduced to me and told me why alcoholism is a disease. And we didn't do it in AA. Dr. Jelinek did that. He said, I said, why is, is alcoholism a disease? He said, because it doesn't respond to self-treatment. It is a multiple disease of many tributaries and all of them have to be treated. And I said, uh, and Dr. Jelinek had been a, 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 a banana scientist down in South America before. And I said, why as a scientist, they deal in facts, you know. Why did you go from bananas to alcoholics? He said, because they're just alike. They get away from the bunch, they get peeled. They're just alike. Said okay, well I'll accept that. And he and the concept that he gave to Bill and all of us that the fact that alcoholism is a disease. Then, then I am I quit treating altogether morally. I know I have a disease, and I know I can't take the first drink. But you have to help me not do that on a daily basis. I get a reprieve that I don't have to drink on a daily basis. So. I'm so glad that, but then I associated for some good reason with all of Selden Bacon was a sociologist, Dr. Haggard was a medical doctor, Dr. Greenberg was another that, that, uh, uh, perfected the alchemeter, the breath analyzer and all that stuff, you know. And they once asked me what you are just a, an alcoholic, uh, with all those people with all those degrees. How do you get along with them? I said, just fine, just fine. I have, uh, a degree myself, RFD3. That's rural free delivery on the third route. You know, those guys are PhDs and all that stuff, but they taught me a lot of what, and the fact that they would, would entertain the idea and promote it from the general public, public, because that's not our business in AA, that alcoholism is a disease and the alcoholic's a sick person and we need treatment. Thank God for those people that helped us come up. Then, Dr. Jelinek hired me, and they moved the Yale School to Fort Worth, TCU at Fort Worth, and I worked for him. We went all over the country uh, setting up those local committees for education on alcoholism to help the alcoholic, the community understand the disease. And it was successful, but Dr. Jelinek got sick. And in the meantime, he said the greatest need we have for the alcoholic in this country is a place for a drunk, to go to a hospital that's respectable and sober up and go into AA and stay sober. And that's the, that's the solution. So we established some hospitals, four of them. One in Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, uh, uh, Lubbock, and Carlsbad, New Mexico. It was the only place in that whole country 
where an alcoholic could go and stay sober and get sober and stay so and get medical treatment as a sick person. It's the only time in the history of that country that you could do that, and it happened. So in the meantime, on on a day in 1953, Bill Wilson and I were in the Melrose Hotel in Dallas, and I asked, I said, Bill, what would you rather see happen today than anything that's ever happened in AA? Thirteen years, AA has been around. He said, quickly, I'd rather see Abby have a chance to get sober. Now, Abby's on the Bowery in New York, and he's been there ever since he told Bill that trust God and clean house, right? So here, he said, you've got a hospital, get Abby down here. And we, we tried ways to, to get Abby from the Bowery, and we tried two or three months, and finally one of our guys found Abby, and he, brought, he sent him to Dallas on the plane, and we got him in there, and he was still hallucinating after 30 days. But he got sober. He stayed sober three and a half years. He stayed sober another four and a half years. He stayed sober five years one time. And when he died in Upper State, New York, he had two and a half years sobriety. He is sober. So let there be no mistake about that. I think that's what Bill said when he, when he said passing on, right? Passing on. No matter where you come from or where you are, where you are today in the program, you're you're one drink from a drunk. We all are. And if we help each other and stick together, we need not ever take another drink, because the solution is in the twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew all about God before coming to AA, but I had to find AA to get to know God. And I think that's true today. You know, I love some of these uh, the things that happened, and like Bill, I knew him so well, I knew what he meant. When he said, my workshop, and I've been to that little house a lot of times, up on the hill from Stepping Stone. And he said, my workshop stands on a hill back of our house. Looking over the valley, I see, I see the village community house where our local group meets. Beyond the circle of my horizon lies the one world of AA. And that's what I see today. I see the whole horizon of the world of AA in you people. You mean to me the very, uh, the meaning of AA, about what it's about. And I'll go, we'll go to San Diego in a couple of weeks. And uh, the old-timers deal will be on Saturday night, if any of you are coming. On Saturday night, we'll look at 76,000 that have found a way of sobriety with their families. Isn't that amazing? Well, these are the... I want to, I want to tell you about them. Alcoholics, we have to improve on things as we go along. And we get, you know, get real pregnant ideas about things. You've heard of the 23rd Psalm, have you? Most of you. Hold up your hands if you've heard the 23rd Psalm. Yeah. Well, I wrote the 23rd and a half. I added a half to it. Is that alright? My wife tells me sometimes this is sacrilegious, but it's not meant that way. These are things that are important. Listen to this. This is the 23rd and a half. The Lord is my sponsor. I shall not walk. 
He maketh me to go to many meetings. He leadeth me to sit back, relax, listen with an open mind. He restoreth my soul, my safety, and my health. He leadeth me in the paths of sobriety, serenity, and the fellowship for mine own sake. He teaches me to think, to take it easy, to live and let live, and do first things first. He maketh me honest, humble, and grateful. He leadeth me to accept things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Yea, though I walk through the valley of despair, frustration, guilt, and remorse, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. The program, thy way of life, twelve steps, they comfort me. Thou prepared a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Rationalization, fear, anxiety, self-pity, and resentment. Thou anointest my confused and mind, mind and jaggle nerves with knowledge and understanding. And hope. No longer am I alone, neither am I afraid, nor sick, nor helpless, nor hopeless. My cup runneth over. Surely sobriety and serenity shall follow me every day of my life, 24 hours a day at a time, as I surrender my will to thine and carry the message to others. I will dwell in the house of my higher power as I understand him daily forever and forever. Amen. I have, there's, a, there's another poem that I, that I love, and I'm going to close before long. How much have we got? An hour and a half? <laughs> okay, it's over. i got to read this, uh, and I know you, the touch of the master's hand. Have you ever heard it? It was battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it was seriously worthwhile to waste his time on the old violin, but he held it with a smile. What am I bidding, good folks? he cried. Who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar? A dollar? Now only two dollars? Who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars, and going, but no. From the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the violin, then wiping the dust from the old violin, and tightening up the strings, he played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as the angels sing. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, What am I bid for the old violin? A thousand dollars? Who'll make it two? Two thousand? Who'll make it three? Three thousand? Who'll make it four? And going, going, and gone, said he. The people cheered, but some of them cried, We do not understand who changed its worth. The man replied, The touch of the master's hand. And many a, many a man with a life out of tomb is auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd, much as the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, then he travels on. He's going and almost gone, but the master comes, the foolish crowd never quite understand the worth of a soul and the chain that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. So the bottom line is, if and when we find a power greater than ourselves with whom we are comfortable, 
And when we turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand it, and we give all of our faith and our hope and our help to those who still suffer, that we do not forget those who are left behind, then we will succeed in our sobriety. And I have faith that that power greater than we are will lead us into the years ahead. People ask me, what's the difference in Alcoholics Anonymous today and when you came in? There is no difference. There is no difference. We are different. We've got a separate, separate people doing, kind of people doing it. But we're still the same. We're on the same road. We're on the same track. And if we will bond ourselves together and follow those 12 traditions, we will always have it as it is today. And you young ones, if you've got one day, if you've got one hour, if you've got two days or ten years or fifty or whatever it is, hold on to it. Whatever you've got. It'll work. Keep coming back. It'll work. I'll guarantee you. I know that. So... I had, I would go back to Stanford and then I'm quitting. Uh, there was a guy that I finished high school in Stanford and he wrote a lot of spiritual songs. And incidentally he came into Alcoholics Anonymous and was two and a half years sober when he died. He wrote songs for shows out in Hollywood. His name was Stuart Hamblin. And he wrote a lot of songs, but I told him one day, I said, you wrote this song for Alcoholics Anonymous and for us, I believe. And I, I'm not going to sing it, don't leave. <clears throat> but it went like this. The chimes of time ring out the news another day is through. Someone slipped and fell. Was that someone you? You may have longed for added strength, your courage to renew. Do not be disheartened because I've got news for you. It is no secret what God can do. There is no night for in his light you'll never walk alone. You'll always feel at home wherever you may roam. There is no power can conquer you while God is on your side. Just take him at his promise. Don't run away and hide. It is no secret what God can do, what he's done for others, he'll do for you. With arms wide open, he'll pardon you. It is no secret what God can do. And it is my firm belief that if we will all individually and collectively Abandon ourselves to God as we understand God. Clear away the wreckage of the past. There is no doubt in my mind that as we trudge down that road to our happy destiny, every single one of us will meet again. So help me, God, and help you. Bless all you. I love you. Yeah.